All right, you should receive a handout on the way in, and it starts at page 11, it's session three, and in the upper right-hand corner you see that we are in Truth for Life, the idea being that we want to take the truth doctrine that we learn in scripture, and we want to apply that to life, and in fact, in the first session, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that that's what doctrine and truth are for. Scripture teaches truth, it teaches doctrine, and the purpose of that is not an end in itself. It's not just for you to learn, me to learn, theology or truth, but rather it's for that truth to change us and then be put into practice in our lives. So I'm not interested as a pastor, I'm not interested in creating Bible trivia buffs <laughs> or even theology buffs. People who know the big theology words, people who know what they mean, can define them perfectly. What I am interested in is for myself and for you, for all of us, is for us to grow in the Lord. And one of the major ways we do that, <coughs> if we handle doctrine and truth properly, is we put that into, put that into practice. So we saw that in the most well-known verse in the Bible about the Bible. It teaches very directly that doctrine is not an end in itself. The Bible was not given to us simply to teach doctrine, but rather that doctrine is for life. Here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for doctrine, first thing, but then convicting then correcting, then training. So it's useful for those four things. They're in a logical order. We talked about that. But the purpose clause is in the next verse, verse 17, where it says, so that. Here's the reason God has given Scripture and the reason Scripture contains doctrine and convicting and, and it convicts and gives you information to help you correct what's wrong and then to train you in habits of righteousness for a lifetime. The reason all that's there, verse 17, is so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible is given, doctrine is given, truth is given for the purpose of us putting it into practice. Every good work. So I beat up that first week, a couple of weeks ago, on those of you that are all in about 10 Bible studies. And it sounds bad for a pastor to say, but you're in too many Bible studies. Just, just you know, get it down to one. Maybe some of you should get it down to none beyond attending church services. Get it down to none and do this. Go through all of the stuff that you've learned over all the years and all those Bible studies and say, which of those things have I not put into practice? <laughs> and take two years, five years to start putting those into practice. Then get in another Bible study, learn some more stuff and put that into practice. No, nobody is interested. God's not interested. Most important, God's not interested in how smart any of us are. God's not interested in how many theological exams we can pass. What he's interested in is in us living a life that reflects him. That's what we were made for. And doctrine and truth is a handmaid of that. It helps us to do that. So that's why this class over the next many weeks. And then we're... We're starting to see now 
individual doctrines and how we apply those to life. Last week, we saw the doctrine of creation and that everything starts with creation. The Bible starts with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that's a mouthful. It creates in just, uh, no pun intended, it it, uh, puts in place uh, in that very first verse of the Bible what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. There's God, and then there are the creatures. We're creatures. We're the highest of God's creatures, alone among God's creatures, who made in his image, for sure, but we are creatures, and he's the creator, and we're under him, and we submit to him. And just from that very first verse, in those first couple of chapters, of God creating everything, including us, then you're to come away with the idea that I am under God. I submit to God. Life is God-centered, and he defines what life is about, why it's here, and what we're to do with it. So I said last week, if you don't get God right, you don't get life right. If you don't get who God is right, you won't get life right. Conversely, if you get God right, you'll get life right. Now, when I say you'll get life right, it doesn't mean your life will be smooth. We're in a fallen world, and none of us gets out unscathed. Matter of fact, barring the, the, the return of the Lord, none of us actually gets out alive. So. <laughs> okay? and, and none of us gets out unscathed. We all have our stuff in a, in a fallen world. But if you get God right, then you will, then you will get God, uh, life, life right. So today, we looked at creation last week. Today we want to look at the doctrine of the glory of God, God's glory. All God does, everything God does, is for his glory. I am teaching on Wednesday nights a class on evangelism. In the first week of that class, I asked the class to think about why does God choose evangelism in order to get his message out? Why does he choose evangelists, us, why does he choose that process of having somebody tell it? Why does he do that? And I'm just giving you some help here that if you're ever in a class at CBC on anything and me or somebody else, we stand up and we, and we say, uh, why did God do something? You're always going to be safe if you go for his glory. Okay? Because that's what he does. That's what he does everything for. This is glory. And what did you say about home? Well, I, w- I had to be at home last week watching you. Okay. You asked a question, and the answer was for the glory of God. There you go. You, you said it and to I the screen. It okay. The all right. Now, now, now here's, the only, here's the only issue now. Do, do any of us believe she did that? Did she actually... <laughs> do you have any witnesses, Sue, that that actually happened? <laughs> no, that's, no, that's excellent. And in the prayer series. I ask the same thing. Why does God choose the means of prayer? Because God doesn't need me to get his message out. And God doesn't need me to come to him with a report on how bad things are down here on earth. But he chooses those, and he chooses those because in those they all require us to do something that relates to his glory, all of them. So that means let's think about what God's glory is. In the first few of these five pages that you have, uh, the author says that it's very difficult to define glory. It, it is. And 
because God's glory is so awesome, it's hard to get your arms around it. But a working definition of God's glory, taking all the scripture says about it into consideration, is this. God's glory is the display of his character. It's God showing what he's like. It's God showing who he is. And he does everything for his glory. He does everything to show what he's like. So prayer shows what God is like because we're dependent on him. So that puts him on the throne. That's, that, that requires us to remember and acknowledge that he's the creator and he's the king. And so it glorifies him when we, when we do that. And it shows that he's the one who can meet the needs. He's the one who made you. He's the one that can supply it. And that's the reason that the Bible says with regard to prayer that you come believing. Because you need to believe that he is all of that. He receives glory when people believe that he is all of that. And acknowledge that he is all of that. Same thing then with evangelism. We're, in, we're dependent on him for the results of our evangelism. We're dependent on him to bring us contacts for evangelism. All of it brings glory to him when we do what he says and then watch him work through our obedience. So all that God does is for his glory. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says this. I will not share my glory with another. So one of the reasons that I teach the way I do and believe the way I believe is because of that. Is because I believe it starts with God. I believe life is about God first. Secondarily about everything else. And if life is about God and God does everything for the display of his character, then any teaching, any doctrine that detracts from that glory I get worked up about. If someone says to me, the reason we are saved is not because of God's ultimate choice, I get worked up about that. Because the reason that God does it that way is so that he gets the credit. He says over and over again, I do this so, I'll quote now, so that no one can boast. God has designed his world so that the only creature who can boast is God. Oh, excuse me, God's not a creature. That no creature, <laughs> that no creature can boast, only the creator can boast. And he wants it exactly that way. And he puts us in situations where we have to acknowledge that it's right for it to be that way. So the Bible then says for you, for me, famously, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Every minute thing going on in your life, eat, drink, whatever. I mean, did, did Paul make it clear that he's talking about everything? And in everything, I'm supposed to think about how the thing displays the character of God, how it brings glory to God. 
Now, that could sound like, you know, you could, you could be sitting there going, well, man, that restricts my life to kind of being a monk or a nun. What kind of life is that? What kind of fun is that? Where's the pizzazz in that? You know, just trying to figure out what glorifies God. It's all about God. It's not, about, it's not ultimately about me. Where do I fit into all that? We're going to see in this lesson that, well, I mean, just we'll see in this lesson, but just in your cursory reading of the Bible and in the New Testament, the individual other than Jesus himself that dominates your New Testament is certainly the Apostle Paul, right? And, you know, did, do you get any sense that he feels like he got ripped off? <laughs> that this is kind of a second-class way to live? <clears throat> In the midst of all of his junk and all the stuff he had to go through, it was worth every bit of it to him. Because he understood who God is. He understood how glorious God is. He understood what a privilege it is to be a vessel of God, to display God's character in his world and to see other people. And he, and he ordered his life around it. So glory should do a couple of things, and then we'll get into the notes here in a minute, honest. Understanding the doctrine of God's glory should, one, increase our fascination with God. It should increase our worship of God as we think about his character and all that's involved in the display of that character. It should increase our fascination of God. And secondly, it should help us explain the emptiness that we and so many others live with. Glory should help us explain the emptiness with which we and so many others live with. Now I say we live with em emptiness. I know pretty much everybody in here. I don't know whether everybody is a child of God. But I know most of you are for sure. And if you're a child of God, there is no excuse and no reason for us to live with emptiness. But our misunderstanding of the glory of God and what it means to live for it puts us in a position to make ourselves empty when in fact we should be full and overflowing with joy, privilege, excitement, enthusiasm, all the stuff that you see in Paul even when the guy's in jail for heaven's sake. It can happen. What you're, you'll see when you look at the glory of God is that it explains why we aren't living to the full. Because we live for far too little. You think that I, when I say this, you know, and you go, man, you know, Brown, Brown's a pastor. Yes. You know, he has to do this stuff. And he... And he hangs out in his office, and I've been in his office. He's got a bunch of books in there. And what kind of life is that, man? I mean, really, okay? But somebody's got to do it, and I'm glad he does it, you know. But, but I, want, I want to get some gusto out of life, you might be thinking. 
Well, I think you're settling for too little in settling for the things that people think are gusto in this life. Our lack of understanding of the beauty of the glory of God causes us to minimize our lives and settle for pottage. Settle for much less than what God has. We reduce the size of our lives to the size of our circumstances. Sin causes that. Sin minimizes. Sin makes small. Sin causes you to reduce the size of your life to the size of your circumstances. But if you understand God and you understand the glory of God, you are not bound by any circumstance that God brings into your life. None. Because you've got a view that is bigger than that. Solomon wrote a whole book on it. Toward the end of his life, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the phrases that you will see is under the sun. And Solomon is describing in that book what life looks out. And it can be depressing, man, to go through that. But what he's describing is what life looks at with a perspective that is narrow, minimized, under the sun. But then there are times in that book where he rises above that, <coughs> above the sun, and he gives the perspective that God sees and that we're supposed to see. And then it looks completely different. So far from being this mundane life, non-exciting life, all of that, a life lived for the glory of God is the absolute best life. It's what we were made to do. And we get to be part of being restored to that and helping others be restored to it. All right, page 11. So Paul Tripp says on page 11, I'll never forget that evening. I can't think of a moment when I was more blown away by music. I don't recall the composer, but I was at a performance played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My ticket put me in the first row, and it was worth it. The music was powerful, foreboding, amazing, haunting, compelling, and glorious all at the same time. There were moments when I wished this night would never end and moments when I wanted to get up and run out of the concert hall. There were moments when the music caused my chest to rattle and moments when it lured me in with a whisper. Moments when musical joy collided with musical fear and a beautiful disharmony of sound. When the performance was over, I felt both sad and exhausted. I wanted more and yet at the same time I felt like I'd had enough. I didn't know why this particular performance had affected me so deeply until I looked at the program and saw the name of the composition. It read, God, the most formidable word ever spoken. What I experienced that night was the attempt of a very gifted composer to capture God in all his amazing and variegated glory in a single piece of music. In one sense, it was a triumphant effort, another a dismal and embarrassing failure. For any human to think that they could capture the glory of God in a single artistic statement is delusional at best, vain at worst. To squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to cram the entire body of, fully de of a fully developed elephant into a thimble. No matter how gifted you are or how hard you try, it just won't happen. The composer, the conductor, the orchestra had done marvelously well by human standards, but their grandest effort 
could only capture less than a drop of the never-ending ocean that is the glory of God. It's not a thing like a shoe, a stake, a candle, a cottage. There are particular physical items, those are particular physical items that could be so carefully described with words that you would immediately have an accurate picture in your mind. One could draw a picture of a shoe, take a photograph of the cottage. You could see it and know what it's like. Glory's not like that. No single drawing, painting, photograph, verbal description could ever capture glory. Glory isn't so much a thing as a description of a thing. Glory isn't a part of God. It's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is, every part of what God does is glorious. But even that's not enough. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory itself is glorious. So what is it? He goes on to say the best way then perhaps to look at this is to just look at some of the passages that talk about it. So third paragraph down. There are places where scripture attempts to define the hugeness of the glory of God and compares it with the smallness or uses the smallness of human language to do so just so we can get a glimpse. For example, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stretches human language to its furthest point of elasticity in order to give us a little glimpse of God's glory. He writes, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now he says, I've actually done this, and it would be a good word picture for you. Go to your sink, turn it on, see how much water you can cup in the palm of your hand before it starts spilling out. Then consider that your God can hold all the liquid in the universe and not spill a single drop. Isaiah goes on to say, he has weighted, weighed the mountains in a scale. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket to him. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah is employing incalculably huge word pictures to help us have a minuscule glimpse of the understanding into how glorious God is. Yet even those picturesque and helpful descriptions fall miserably short of capturing the awesome glory of God. So when the Bible speaks of God's glory, what's it talking about? It encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. I say it's his character. It's who he is. And we were made to display it, and the world was made to display it. Now, why does it matter? Look at the next page. Page 13. After reading all of that, you may have some questions. Okay, Paul Tripp, who wrote this, I recognize that God is glorious and that his glory is important, but how? I want to dedicate the second half of this paper, he says, to that. Here are six implications of the doctrine of glory and its effect on our everyday lives. One, you and I are hardwired by God for glory. We were made for that. We were made for more. That's why I say we settle for too little. We look for it in the temporal, fleeting stuff that this temporal world has to offer. And we were made for more than that. And we're hardwired for glory. So here's what that means. If there had been no sin, we would live in this glorious way before God in his glorious world. But sin enters the world. And as a result of that now, instead of looking for glory in all the right ways and all the right places, we now look for it not in the creator, but in created things. 
Romans 1 says that, that we've exchanged the glory of the creator for the creation, for created things. So we look for it simply in the world around us and what it can offer. And we think that is fantastic. The Super Bowl, are you kidding? If I, if I could get a ticket to go to Super Bowl, my life would be complete. And Aaron said, I'd sell it. You'd sell it. Okay. So, so it's always good to have our resident scalper on hand. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, and, and that would be a lot of, sure, be fun. And if I could go with some people and fellowship with them and, have, and, and create a memory out of that, fine. But that, that is nowhere near. And, and, but, but the world makes it as best it can. That's glory. And that's nowhere near the glory that God has, that God is. And that God has for us. But because we're hardwired for it, we seek it. So you're going to seek glory somewhere. The question is where? From what? And from who? People are glory-oriented creatures. Animals are not. People are attracted to glorious things, whether it's an exciting drama, sports game, enthralling piece of music. Best meal. Animals live by instinct and exist to survive. We live with a glory hard wiring, chase bigger and better things. God built this glory orientation into us. It's not sinful or against God's will to be attracted to glorious things. Because of this glorious orientation, though, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory. Secondly, God created this glorious world to point to his glory. God intentionally placed us in a world jam-packed with glory. Trees, flowers, mountains mashed potatoes to steak to lemonade, thunderstorms to sunsets, snowfalls, all of these were designed to tingle our glory sensors. But it's important to understand that every created glory is meant by God to function as GPS that points to the only glory that will ever, ever satisfy, and that's the glory of God. So imagine taking a trip to Disney World. You're 30 miles out. You spot a sign on the side of the road with the logo and the name of the resort, and then you stop at the sign and have your family vacation there at the sign on the side of the road. And so it is with the glory of God in creation. It's only a sign. Creation is a sign directing you somewhere else. Don't stop at the sign. Don't be satisfied with the signs. Third, only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. If there exists within each of us this hunger for glory, and there does, then one could argue that everything we think, desire, say, and do is done out of a quest for glory. We all want is what is glorious in our, in our lives, whether that's the fleeting glorious pleasure of a meal, the glory of a recognition by peers or su supervisors, or participating in the glorious work of the kingdom of God here on earth. Hey, that sounds, that sounds good. 
Where we chase after glory can vary, but one thing is for certain. The hunger for glory will never, ever be satisfied by created things. Even if you could experience the most glorious situations, locations, relationships, experience, achievements, and possessions in this life, your heart would still not be satisfied. Creation has no capacity whatsoever to bring contentment to your heart. Only God can satiate our hunger, and in satiating our hunger, give peace and rest to our, to our hearts. But as I said earlier, sin minimizes. Sin makes the size of our lives into the size of our circumstances. And that's what he's saying with number four. Sin turns you and me into glory thieves. The original design was for humans to live in a glorious world, exist in perfect relational <coughs> harmony with a glorious God, but sin corrupted that original design. And now you and I have the desire to live for ourselves. Instead of living for the glory of God, we try to steal that glory for ourselves. We demand to be in the center of our world, take credit for what only God could produce, want to be sovereign, want others to worship us, establish our own kingdom, and punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve, and we complain when we don't get whatever it is we want. It's a glory, it's a glory disaster. And in the process of doing all of that, we create our little kingdom around these things from which we think we will get glory, all the while minimizing the size of our lives. Now, jot down, if you would, Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2 and verse Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Here's what it says. Verse 5, it is not to angels that he, God, has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified. And by the way, when you read through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will sometimes say that. There's a, there's a place where and he's quoting the Bible, like the first part of the Bible. So here when he says there's a place where someone has said, you notice it's in quotation marks? That's a quote from Psalm number 8 in your Bible, Psalm number 8. And here's what the psalmist said, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You, God, made him... A little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. Now, when it says, what is man that you're mindful of him? I think we all get that. This is speaking to God. What is humanity that you are mindful of humanity, that you care about humanity? What's the big deal with humanity to you, God? But then you got that next line that says, the son of man that you care for him. Now, when you see the son of man there, I think many people think this has switched now. The one line was about humanity. The next line is about Jesus. Because Jesus called himself, you remember, in fact, this was his most often used phrase for himself, was the son of man. So the son of man that you care for him. Now, this is from the Psalms, Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, you've heard me say, has parallel lines. 
So you'll have the first line will say something, and then the second line will say it again, sometimes using just different language to catch your attention or explain it further. In other words, those two lines are saying exactly the same thing. When the first line talks about humanity, the second line just talking about humanity as well. You and me. What it, who are we that God regards us? Why does he? And then the psalmist goes on to talk about why. You, God, made him, humanity, us, a little lower than the angels, and this is what you did. You crowned him, us, with glory and honor, and you put everything under his, that is, our feet. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 8. That's what the writer of Hebrews is quoting here. God, you have made amongst your creatures, you have made this one creature, humanity, and you have made this creature for glory and honor, and you have put everything under his feet. He, humanity, she, humanity, us, were made by you, God, to rule your stuff for you. Put everything under our feet. When God made Adam and Eve, that's what they were to be. He made humanity to represent him on his earth and do his bidding. <clears throat> to be, as some have called it, his vice regents in his world. Clothe them with glory and honor, putting everything under their feet. So how have we done with that? How's that work out for you? And us. God did that. So here it goes on to say, verse 8, in putting everything under him, again, who is him? Humanity. God left nothing that is not subject to him. Nothing. Subject to us. Humanity. That's the way it was supposed to be. You remember before Adam sinned that God parades the animals in front of him? And, and Adam names, they're subject to Adam. Whatever Adam says they are, they are. That's what we were made for. God's king of his world. Left nothing that's not subject to him. But then this is the great, one of the greatest understatements, this next line, in the entire word of God. Here's the next line. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. This is the way he made it. Yet, at present. <laughs> Yet, if you look at the reality show that is our world, that's not what you see. You don't see, at present, what was made at the beginning. So how do you get back to it? How do we claw our way back to Eden? How do we become the kings and priests 
before God that we were made to be ruling for him. At present, it's not happening because something's happened in between. When God made it that way and where we are now, something happened in between. That would be we rebelled. And so we pursue our own glory. We pursue our own lives. So at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But then notice verse 9. But. How do we get there? Thanks be to God, there's a contrast to the way things are and the way they can become. The contrast is in this, but we see Jesus. See, we don't see everything subject to humanity the way it was written. The way it is now ain't the way it was designed. So what are we going to do? We see, we don't see the world as it was designed. Here's what we see. We see Jesus. And what is Jesus? It goes on. He was made a little lower than the angels. But we see him now in the present crowned with glory and honor. Now, where did you see glory and honor? You saw it back under verse 6. That glory and honor was supposed to be what we, that's what we were made for. But we don't see it happening. So now God has Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Clothed now, now at the present. We're not at the present, but at the present he's crowned with glory and honor. And here's why. He suffered death so that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now how does him suffering death relate to him being the one who's now qualified to be the glory bearer, ruling for God. How does him tasting death do that? Here's how. What that's saying is this. What the Bible calls elsewhere the last Adam. Do you all know who the last Adam is? That would be Jesus. And there's the first Adam. So when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's a line that says, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. It's talking about Jesus. So you got the original Adam. You got the original humanity. This is what we were made for. We blew it. So yet at present, you don't see any of that happening in humanity. But what you do see is somebody else made with glory and honor, somebody else who came into the human race, a human being, the last Adam obeyed where the first Adam disobeyed. And that's why Jesus is the one who's qualified now to rule for God. And then those who are attached to Jesus get to rule with him. The way you get back to Eden is through Jesus. He suffered death. He, and that's what Philippians chapter 2 teaches. Philippians 2, if you want to jot it down, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, <clears throat> teaches that though he's God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But Paul goes on to write, he was willing to become, humble himself and become human. 
Like the first Adam, he became like that. But the difference is, and he was obedient. That's what it says. But he was obedient, even obedient, even unto death on a cross. Meaning, obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross. In every part of Jesus' life, he obeyed where we were supposed to obey. That's why you guys hear me say on Sunday mornings when I give an invitation, I say Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live. We've blown it. He did it. Therefore, because he did that, because he suffered death on the cross, and he was obedient even to the point of dying on the cross, therefore God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the... Do you guys remember? You were made for glory. God made us for his glory. We have forfeited our glory. We get it back through Jesus. You attach your life. You have a relationship with the one who is now qualified to be the king. And the Bible teaches we will reign with him. In the meantime, we do things like number five. We inaccurately point the finger of blame and prolong our glory dysfunction. It's tempting to blame the glory war that rages within us on outside elements and culprits. If only our culture wasn't so perverse. If only the media didn't pr promote sinful priorities. If only our government was more committed to morality. Outside factors are strong and influential, but the glory war that rages within our hearts is first what attracts us to those outside elements. Within the heart of every sinner is a deep and abiding glory dysfunction. Living for the glory of self is more natural to us than acknowledging and living for the glory of God. In our self-deception, we tell ourselves that we really can satisfy our hunger by drinking from dry wells. If we want to solve our glory dysfunction, we have to get the heart to the heart of that dysfunction, which is, in fact, the heart. Last, God's grace alone has the power to cure our glory dysfunction. The reality is that we can't actually solve our own. Many have tried, none have succeeded. Our only hope is for the God of glory to invade our lives and rescue us, but not rescue us from culture, media, government, rescue us from us. And this is why Jesus came to earth, lived righteously on our behalf, died for our dysfunction, then rose again, conquering sin and death. In amazing grace, he willingly came on a glory rescue mission, and because he did, there's hope for us. When we admit to our glory thievery and cry out for help with our dysfunction, we can finally be free from the never-satisfying quest for worldly glory and live forever in the, light of the, in, in the light of the satisfying glory of God. You see, there's only one who exists in the universe who is ultimate in glory, ultimate in greatness, beauty, and perfection. And he's all of these things in everything he is and in everything he does. God has no glory inconsistencies. He has no glory rivals. All that is comes from him. All that is continues to exist from him. And all that... Uh, is was made for him to live in light of the doctrine of God's glory isn't just about being spiritual it's about recapturing your humanity because this is how humanity was designed to live and I don't like to brag but it's dead on noon baby <laughs>
So let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed day to sing praise to you, to open your book, learn of you, to learn better how to approach you in prayer. And Lord, then this hour, to consider your person, to consider your character, the brilliance of your glory, and the humbling thought that you made us, that you made humanity, to share in that glory, to reflect that glory to your world and back to you. Lord, we acknowledge that we fail and that we look for glory in so many other things other than you and your purpose for us here. And so, Lord, I, I pray that this time would cause all of us to reconsider that to which we are giving our lives day in and day out. Consider the things that have caused us to be distracted from the true glory that is, and that is yours. And help us this week, even this afternoon, to begin seeing through new eyes. Seeing the things around us as simply signposts, as a GPS pointing us to the true source, which is always you. May we glorify you in the way we live this week, in the way we think and the way we talk, and in the things that we choose to prioritize. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.